Hey, this is Robbie Baseball from the Dingers Fantasy Baseball Podcast, and you are listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 222, Big Trouble in Little China Movie Review. Brian, along with Derek Myers, this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. We're back this week with a movie review of the 1986 John Carpenter cult classic, Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, we also have the results of our recent 1986 pop culture fantasy draft. But before we get to all that, uh, we've been away for a few weeks. So Derek, what pop culture were you able to take in while we were away from the show around here? Uh, well, I had a lot of opportunity to watch a lot of things, mm-hmm. but as we try and keep this podcast to about the one hour mark, I'll, I'll try to just keep it to the highlights and I'll cross a bunch off the list that, you know, really aren't worth mentioning. Uh, but I'll talk about a few, few decent ones. So, uh, while I was on vacation, I, I had an opportunity to, uh, to go away for a, a nerd convention, a board game convention. And while we were away, You're not a nerd. Uh, no, no, well, no, no, while we were away, um, Later in the evenings, we go back to the room and there was a couple of movie channels. So you get to see, you know, whatever happens to be on. And one of the movies that was on that we caught was a movie called Waiting. And it stars Ryan Reynolds. And Was he playing Ryan Reynolds in it? Yes, very much so. What a a shot. It's actually got a pretty good cast. Uh, Sort of Justin Long is in it as well. Um, Oh, my God. I'm blanking out a bunch of the names. Luis Guzman, um, Chai McBride. There's uh, there's a bunch of of people you're going to watch and go, oh. I know that guy. Oh, I know that girl. Uh, Anna Ferris is uh, the mm-hmm. female lead. It's basically, if you've ever seen the movie clerks, the Kevin Smith clerks, where it's, oh, yeah. you know, the good. whole tagline for that is just because they're just because they serve you doesn't mean they like you. Um, same idea with this waiting. It's, it's a one day movie about um, uh, the people who work in a restaurant and it's all the shenanigans that go on behind the scenes. Now I've never worked in a restaurant but my wife has, and we were watching this together. And I knew you have, yes, uh, making magic at Chuck E. Cheese. And <laughs> Kay was telling me that like so much of what was in this movie are actually things she either did or witnessed firsthand. So uh, although some of the things just seemed wildly outrageous, she was uh, she could testify that a lot of it was clearly firsthand and clearly the script writers either worked in restaurants themselves or knew people that did. And if if that's the kind of thing that you think you might enjoy, uh, I would recommend checking it out. Uh, I think it's from the early 2000s. It stars Ryan Reynolds, so I'm sure it's available on some of the streamers. I've seen it before. I just hadn't seen it in a long time. And it was it was on right after Free Guy. So we caught the last 20 minutes of Free Guy. And then they're like, well, if you like Ryan Reynolds, here he is again in an older movie. So uh, that one's called Waiting. So it was pretty decent. Cool. And then we also had a chance to go to the theater, the actual movie theater, nice. IMAX and everything. And we saw the new Top Gun movie, Top Gun Maverick. Oh, and wow. Let me tell you, A plus. It was great. Now, in all fairness, it is everything you expect from Top Gun to the point of almost being Top Gun, uh, like the original, I mean. So this is the way I described it. The Star Wars The Force Awakens is to Star Wars 
as Top Gun Maverick is to Top Gun in the sense that it's pretty much the same story, the same beats. Yep. It's just the next generation, but very, very much of the story and um, huge points of the plot are literally the same as the first movie. But you know what? I love the first movie, as did so many people. It was great. And I, I think you know a lot of it really holds up well. So they basically just put the 2020 spin on it added some hot, awesome special effects and some fantastic camera work. And I mean, who are we kidding? Tom Cruise knows how to make a movie. And it is everything you expect from a Tom Cruise movie. It was great. My really, my only criticism, which is not even a criticism about the movie itself, is that in the theater, they are showing so many advertisements before the movie now that oh, it is ridiculous. It was over 15 minutes of commercials and not just movie trailers. Now, personally, no. I'm not a movie trailer guy. I don't want anything spoiled. But it's like ads for cars and ads for yep. beer and ad like things that have nothing to do with my movie going experience. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I would rather they just charge me a couple extra dollars on the ticket price and start the movie when they say they're going to start the movie. So that that bugs me a lot when you go to the theater that, you know, it says it's going to start at 9 p.m. and it doesn't actually start till 920 p.m. It's like it's a bit of a pain in the butt. But the, the, but the movie itself, fantastic. So nice. I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, and then finally. I had a chance to watch documentary. For 40 days and 40 nights, he watches documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's documentaries. Derek's documentaries. Man, I haven't been able to play that in a while. Yeah, no kidding. Nice. What was it? All right. Chris, mm -hmm. do you know what the satanic panic is or was? Uh, was it a book by Salman Rushdie back in the 80s? No, I think that was the Satanic Versus. But oh, I think you're was right. Yeah, uh, the Satanic Panic mm -hmm. is a phenomenon around the Dungeons and Dragons game. What happened in the mid 1980s when the Dungeons and Dragons game was becoming very popular is a certain number of religious groups <laughs> in the U.S. took tremendous offense to the game or what they believed the game was all about. They they felt that it promoted witchcraft and they felt that the art was suggestive and in all fairness and and, uh, and that was like that movie Mazes and Monsters kind of focused on that a bit. That was yeah. that was part yeah. of what spun out of it. But what what it's it since then what it's what, what a lot of us have learned is um, the people who are at the forefront of this uh, objection had never played the game, had never read the books of the game, had never talked right. to people who actually played and enjoyed the game. It was a lot of, well, we think it's about this, or I've looked at this picture yeah. and it makes me feel this way, so then that must be a problem. And like so many things in our society, one person with a loud voice and a pulpit can really influence a lot of people for better, for worse. And the people that unfortunately for, for, you know, at this time and in this place in the U S they were able to make it a national phenomenon. They, they tied, um, instances of violence and instances of suicide and instances of people going missing to what, uh, to the game. Now they in, in fact had absolutely nothing to do with D and D it's like when they, you say, well, rock music makes kid do bad things. No, I mean, kids might do bad things and they might happen to listen to rock music, but you can't directly 
draw a line to say they listened to this song and it made them go out and shoot someone like it, that's not the way it works and that was basically what was happening with D&D in the 80s was they were saying well kids are going to play this game or read these books and they're going to worship the devil and they're going to you know uh, uh, disregard Christianity and all the teachings and all the things we've taught them they're going to be bad people and they're going to hurt society and blah 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 so this documentary it's called the satanic panic and the religious battle for the imagination. It is um, a, a gentleman who is actually uh, a minister. Uh, I don't think he's a priest. I think a minister was a right turn or a bishop or religious dude. Uh, he has been a longtime avid gamer. Uh, he has worked in uh, in the in the uh, in the church for 20, 25 years, and he talks about his own experience living through the satanic panic, both good and bad, and, and as someone who has uh, been a man of faith for years. And uh, it's an interesting exploration of of this phenomenon of the satanic panic and the ups and downs. And then over the years, how it, the pendulum has almost swung the other way, where it was this game that nobody wanted anything to do with uh, because it was so so stigmatized that that it's now becoming this very, very popular game that everybody wants to play for all these other very positive reasons. So it was it was very interesting, very good. He had a lot of good interviews with many of the people who, created the game and worked for the parent company in the 80s while this was going on. And he talks to a lot of uh, religious leaders and, again, people who were in the church and in the clergy at the time when it was happening. It's, it's quite fascinating. So if you are um, if you are a role-playing game person, you like D&D, um, you know, if you're into that kind of thing, this, this is one that you may want to check out. It's called The Satanic Panic and the Religious Battle for the Imagination. So Give cool. A-plus from me. All right, I got a few things for us this week, and I know that's a little bit weird because I usually don't have a lot to contribute at this part of the show because, you know, I, I just watch the same movies over and over again. But <clears throat> I mentioned at the top, we've been away for a while. We've taken a couple weeks off. My wife and I went on to Las Vegas for, on, for a vacation. So now, Derek, I know how much you love going to Las Vegas. You go there all the time, and I know you like gambling, but do you ever take in any shows when you when you go there? Uh, not recently. I've been to Vegas so many times that I, I have seen a number of the shows, but it, it's been quite a while since I've had a chance to take in any of the shows in Vegas. My wife and I went to see two shows when we were in Vegas. So the first one, we saw The Beatles Love by Cirque du Soleil. I've seen that one. It's fantastic. Oh my God, it's so good. I got us tickets right at the stage. So, and of course, we get there and we get to our seats and my wife is like, these seats are too close. I'm like, jeez, I tell you. I mean, the show is amazing. Though. Like the music, my God, the music. The Beatles were the greatest band that ever was. They're the greatest band that ever will be. I mean, and I really love the interpretations of their music in a really kind of different and unique way. So it was really something else to see. Oh, even if apparently we were too close to the stage, I tell you. But the, the second show that I want to mention, and I, I kind of had to drag my wife to it. We went to see... Rich Little. Nice. So, to be fair, I didn't even know he was still alive. So for the millennial portion of our listeners, Rich Little is a Canadian impressionist. And he was big back in the 60s and 70s. He used to do these like spot on impersonations of, of just about everyone and everyone. And he would do those old comedy roasts. You know, again, for millennials, I think a lot of people, younger people, they're used to those Comedy Central roasts, you know, with Jeff Ross and yeah. Greg Geraldo and, and, and those people. But years ago, Steve Allen and Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr., they used to do these roasts and Rich Little was on them more than 
anyone else. And he also hosted The Tonight Show for Johnny Carson when, when Johnny Carson would be away. He hosted it over 30 times. Wow. Anyway, I didn't even know he guy was still alive, let alone doing a show in Vegas. He's 83 years old. He's still wow. doing a Vegas act. So I had to go see him. I just had to. And the best part was, it was basically this trip down memory lane. Like he, he shows these clips of him on all these old variety shows with people like Carol Burnett and Julie Andrews. And, and he does these jokes and, and, and impressions. And, and he was the best story, I think, was what he told about the time he was on The Tonight Show. And he was hosting. And Dick Sean was a guest. Now, Dick Sean basically destroyed the set. He just went crazy. Dick Sean was this character actor back in the day. And he was an inspiration for Andy Kaufman because he was like a weirdo, right? And he was, you remember Three's Company? He was um, Jack Tripper's dad on Three's Company. But anyway, a little known actor. And he went nuts on The Tonight Show and... And it was, oh God. And he was like talking about that. And like, it was sort of like behind the scenes of his career and stuff. It was great. I, I really, really enjoyed it. My wife tolerated it. Let's just say <laughs> that. So anyway, that's what I did in my time off. And, uh, and now I've got this for you. Here's your dad joke of the week. Now, Derek, since we're doing the movie Big Trouble in Little China this week, I thought I'd, I'd do a, da- a dad joke about Chinatown. This this oh could get me in trouble. Yeah, I was going to say, be racially sensitive here, bud. Get those sensors ready. Okay. All right, Derek. Why, why did the nymphomaniac like going to the gym in Chinatown? Even if I thought I knew the answer, I'm not saying anything. Because there were everywhere. Jeez. That's, that's so inappropriate. <laughs> But I thought it'd be better if I did it with song. Any opportunity to sing a song? Yeah, Hundo P. Oh my god, of course it is. World. Terrible. I'm a Sure. But I am one with a neck full of gold. I can think of 11 reasons not to like that. <laughs> world to your mother. Actually, Derek, before we get to our movie review, last time out, we held a pop culture fantasy draft from the year 1986. We each drafted a team of three movies, three TV shows, three songs, and a personal pick like we always do. And we sent the list off to our panel of judges, and they returned a verdict. Uh, So, Derek, are you ready to find out who won the pop culture fantasy draft honestly chris it's been so long since we did the last show i totally forgot that we never resolved it yeah so i know so yeah here we go all right here we go the winner is derek congratulations my friend we have a panel of nine judges. Any guess what the final vote tally was? Mm, seven to two. Eight to one. Wow. My God. So here's the thing. You know how I'm always saying about how great our judges are, right? Like oh, yeah. I describe them as they're, they're esteemed and they're knowledgeable and they're highly intelligent and all that stuff. I'm beginning to think that they... Well, I uh, I hope none of them are listening because that may hurt your chances in future uh, future drafts. Well, I mean, I went or rather back. I hope they're all listening and you heard them, <laughs> folks. You you be influenced as you see fit. I, what I, is that? 
I for, thought for that how many drafts is that for us? That's seven now or six? Uh, I think it, we've done seven now, if I'm not mistaken. So I think I'm catching up, right? Is, four, is that four, to, four three. to three now? Yeah, four to three nice. for me. Nice. So I decided to go back and take a look at our list because I thought, oh, maybe I'm just being, you know, prejudiced here. Maybe they are right, you know. I just, I wanted to get a feel for the judges, like why they voted so strongly for you. Like I wanted to get an objective look at it, kind of see what they saw. So I went back, looked at the list, and I actually came to a conclusion. You know what I realized? Our judges. <sighs> I'm just going to step out of the way and let you shoot yourself in the foot because we still have three more of these to do. So. Yeah, you're right. Okay, so let's get on to our movie for this week. So Big Trouble in Little China is the movie. Uh, uh, it was released on July the 2nd, 1986. And uh, like, as I mentioned, we did 1986 for our last pop culture fantasy draft. So you chose this movie, Derek, to be your movie review pick from that year. Uh, it was made on a budget of approximately $20 million. It didn't even make back half of that amount. It finished all the way down at 70 sec- or yeah, 72nd overall at the box office that year. It was outgrossed by such theatrical juggernauts like Club Paradise, Sweet Liberty, and Psycho 3. <laughs> Hell, even Howard the Duck did better than it. And that's considered one of the biggest box office bombs of all time. But all that being said... The movie has achieved cult film status over the years. So maybe you can kick things off for us and tell us why you decided you wanted to go with this movie for your review pick from 1986. Sure. So this is one of those rare instances where I picked a movie that I was actually not that familiar with. Often I'll I'll suggest we watch a movie and I'll say, oh, I've seen this movie 20 times and it was great for whatever reasons. This is a movie that I only think I ever saw once or maybe twice and actually did not remember very much of it at all. But I I recall that obviously it had Kurt Russell in the main role. It's directed, I think, written and directed by John Carpenter. Well, directed anyway by John Carpenter. And I, I sort of had a vague memory of sort of the broad strokes of the plot. And I know that like to the point you just made, it's considered a cult classic. A lot of people hold this up as sort of their quote, guilty pleasure movie. Not that I think they have anything to feel guilty about. I mean, Hey, if, if you like it, you like it, but a lot of people hold this movie in high regard. And so when we, and I believe you picked this as your personal pick in, yeah, the, in, the, in the draft. I like it. And, and part of the reason I didn't pick it in the draft, even though I thought it might play well with the judges is, I didn't remember it well enough and I, I don't have that personal attachment to it. So it's actually, that's why I wanted to watch it is I thought I need to get in on this movie again and understand why do people like it so much? Does it hold up? Is it as great as people say? And and like, why don't I remember it more clearly? Was I just too young when I watched it? Um, you know, is there, is there something in this that I just, I don't recall that when I see it now, it's going to win me over. Uh, or the opposite. Am I going to watch and go, this is garbage. That's why I don't remember. I, honestly, I had no no memory, no real influence. So that I wanted to watch it because to me, it was almost like coming to the movie brand new, it, it, which is normally you pick a movie I've never seen. But in this case, I, I pretty much picked a movie myself that I've never seen. Well, I mean, that I haven't don't remember seeing. So, yeah, I wanted to I wanted to come to it brand new and, and have uh, have a discussion. I figured if you picked it as your personal pick, you obviously have some some personal thoughts about it. So. We, we should be able to come up with some sort of interesting dialogue. So that being said, that was why I, I wanted to pick this movie. I think we should start with John Carpenter. 
because you know you mentioned him, and, and his first real feature was assault, <clears throat> assault on Precinct Thirteen in 1976. But it was really Halloween in 1978 that really kind of put him on the map, and he reeled off a few pretty decent horror movies right after that. He did The Fog and The Thing and Christine. Um, he also directed Escape from New York, which we have done here on the podcast. Which and I liked and you did not. I didn't like it. And he also did Starman. And then which in I 1986, liked. he came out with this movie. And he'd worked with Kurt Russell before this. Uh, you often mention how directors like to work with the same actors over and over. But Derek, I have a question for you. When we, when we think about John Carpenter, like I know you're a pretty big Carpenter fan, I think. How do you think that this movie ranks in his filmography? So I haven't actually seen a lot of Carpenter movies. I've seen sort of the big ones. I've seen most of the ones you just mentioned. I've mm-hmm. not seen Halloween. I've seen The Fog. I've seen Escape from New York. I've seen The Thing many times. Never watched Christine. I've seen Starman. Um, I've seen They Live. I've seen uh, the uh, did one in 1998 called Vampires, and I saw the sequel Escape from L.A., but that was pretty much it. I, like, I don't remember. I think, I, like I said, I'm pretty sure I'd seen Big Trouble in Little China before, but it was like coming to it new today. So although I don't know a lot of his movies that well, I would probably put this one somewhere in the middle. Uh, there was things I liked about it, but at the same time, there was a mm. lot of stuff in this that I just thought, you know what? It didn't really work for me unless you're watching it sort of from that silly perspective. You know, sometimes like mm-hmm. a movie is shot or told a certain way where you're not supposed to take it seriously. It's over the top deliberately because it's trying to produce yep. a certain style. So I assume some of the things that maybe I didn't care for as much in this viewing were some of those aspects where the things were just so over the top that I didn't really love it. But I think that's why a lot of people do like this so much. So for those reasons, I think I would have to put it somewhere in the middle. Mm, that's fair. I want to talk a little bit about the Asian actors and just... Even just the idea of Asian actors in general, because it was very rare for Asian actors to get roles with with any substance back in the 80s. And to be honest with you, it really hasn't changed a lot. If you, I think it took until 2021 for an Asian actor to get a lead in a big budget action film because Simu Liu did Shang-Chi, right? Yeah. But I mean, back in the day, Asian actors, they always were like relegated to playing henchmen. And, and, or, funny and they would, yeah, I was going to say, and they would often be stereotyped. They would literally play the stereotype and, yes. and uh, you know, which is incredibly problematic. The henchman of all Asian henchmen, Al Leong, is in this movie playing, of course, a Wing Kong henchman. And you know, if you see him, he, he was in Die Hard and, and he played Genghis Khan in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, probably best remembered as... Of course, the henchman in um, that that shocked Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon. Remember, he shocked him with the the car battery and the jumper cables. Remember oh that? yeah, remember yeah, yeah. Scene? I I actually remember him from Die Hard. He's the guy who yeah. steals the candy bar from the when they're in the lobby and they're waiting and he sees yes. the candy bar in the thing. And he's, so yeah. those were the kind of roles that Asian actors just got in Hollywood. I mean, if you, if you remember when you know we we've talked about Revenge of the Nerds before, they basically make jokes in that movie about Takashi just because he's Asian. Yeah. You know, like, it's, just, it's so ridiculous. But in this movie, what I liked was that you've actually got some pretty decent roles for Asian actors. And the film opens up with Egg Shen telling his story to an attorney. And really, he sets the stage for the whole film. And Dennis Dunn 
I think gets a great opportunity to play a lead role, kind of a co-lead role, really, because yeah. he was Wang. But so so Derek, any perspective like in regard to the roles that are given to Asian actors in this movie, especially considering the time that it came? Yeah. It, well, I mean, I think it's definitely uh, was was somewhat progressive for its time. And, and to your point, I mean, the the leads are. Like the main leads are white. You got Kurt Russell and Kim Cattrall as your main boy girl combo at the top. And I think you need that to sell this movie in Hollywood. And then um, uh, Kate Burton is uh, plays the reporters. People probably recognize her as uh, the mother of uh, Meredith Grey and Grey's Anatomy. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's where I always remember her from, although she does have a pretty uh, extensive uh, acting uh, resume. But aside from those three Caucasian actors, all the rest of the actors are Asian, which is great. I mean, you've got the representation. You can't have a movie that takes place in Chinatown exclusively and and have non-Chinese actors in it, non-Asian actors in it. Like you can't just have all these white people running around. It just, not only would it not make sense, it would be insulting to this community that you're trying to to depict this movie as being a part of. And and I, I mean, well, Hollywood have, is, like, Hollywood has a long history of being insulting. Well, toward, yeah, no kidding. And we'll but, get back to that later. But I mean, James Hong is, he's been working steadily for, you know, 40 years. He's been, anytime they needed a, an Asian actor, like he's the guy he was in Blade Runner for freak's sake. Like he's been in so much stuff, but the fact that he's like the main villain in this, it's like, yeah, like perfect. He was, he was great in it. And he's had a long career of, uh, of playing, uh, various roles. Um, and I mean, Victor Wong, like you said, who plays egg Shen, he's been in tons of stuff too. So, I mean, I recognize those two guys immediately, uh, from many, many, many things. Most of the other performers, I didn't really, recognize right away but that's not to say that they haven't worked i mean i think in many cases they probably um you know are bigger actors in in more chinese film which you know is just not something that i'm that familiar with james hong has been prolific hasn't he oh he's done so much stuff but the thing is much like a lot of other asian actors in hollywood he's just mostly always had small parts i i think he's probably best known um probably for this movie and maybe for seinfeld he was the oh, major yeah. D in the Chinese Seinfeld, restaurant. Party one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the one thing, you know, there's a lot of talk about how Paul Rudd never ages, but I think we need to really add James Hong to that list because this dude yeah. looks great for his age. He's in his 90s and he and he's still working too, by the way. He's like I'm the rich little of Asian actors. Yeah. I'm like, looking him up he, here. In, a, in uh, the IMDb, he's got 453 look, acting uh, credits. Very prolific actor. That's crazy. Now, in all fairness, a lot of these, especially the newer ones, are um, voice acting. He's been yeah, doing he's a lot, done of, a voices lot and of voice cartoons and things of that. Career, yeah. Again, he's he's got a distinct enough voice that yeah, you, you know it's an Asian performer. So they, they would often have him doing uh, voices in cartoons where they, they, you know, had an Asian character. So... No, he yeah, he's he's been in friggin' everything. Like I'm just looking through this. He was in you got four hundred movie credits. You you were literally in everything. This guy works so much. Well, you mentioned the cast. What about Kurt Russell? Like we, we mentioned him on a previous podcast. I probably when we did um, Escape from New York. Escape from New York. Yeah. I mentioned how I always think of him as a bit of a B movie actor. Like you could make the argument that this is a B movie. Do you oh, agree? There's no argument. That's yeah. that's that's a fact. But it's funny you mentioned this. Uh, so one of the things I was going to talk about at the top of the show, I had a long list of movies I watched in this mm-hmm. past couple of weeks. I watched the movie Miracle about the Miracle Ooh, on Ice hockey team. He was team quite from good in that. He was, I'd never seen yeah. it before, and I watched it this week, and he was Herb fantastic. Brooks. He played Herb, Herb Brooks. Brooks. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he was fantastic in he that movie. He was really good. Yeah, he was really good. No, I, I like Kurt Russell a lot. I honestly can't think of a movie I've seen with Kurt Russell where I didn't think he did a good job. Now, he's been in some 
you know, I don't say terrible movies. He's been in some bad movies, but he's even been in a lot of mediocre movies. But I always find I enjoy his performance, whether it's used cars or overboard or the thing or escape from New York or even the newer movies he's done with Tarantino. I think he's doing a great job. I think he's he's done a great job. I think he's had a prolific career. I think he's made good choices for the most part for his uh, his jobs. And, and I think I think he does a great job in this playing the kind of character they needed him to play in exactly like you said in this B movie and he's over the top and he's, he's stereotypical in certain ways. And I think that's a hundred percent deliberate to make the movie that they're trying to make. I think it's deliberate too. Like his attitude, you know, he's wearing the tank top shirt, referring to himself in the third person all the time. Yes. Like that's, it's, it's yeah. In, in character, the characters take himself seriously, but we're laughing at him. It's being done for comedy. Like it's, it's he's, perfect. Yeah, it's he's fun. got that brash way of talking. Like he talks loud and boisterous and he, he laughs too loud at stuff. And, and he, even his truck has got hauling on it. Yeah. And he <laughs> loves guns, but he doesn't really know how to use them. Like he, he is presented as a stereotypical American. I think you, you hit on something there. So yep. maybe we'll come back to that in a bit. Cause I think that's interesting. Sure. I want to talk a little bit about Kim Cattrall too. Because I think she's known to millennials as Samantha from Sex and the City. Oh, for sure. But to Gen Xers like me, I know her from Porky's. From I know her from movie. Mannequin. She and, was the oh, Mannequin in Mannequin. That's where I always Academy. remember her. Police Academy, and, too. I Honestly, I don't remember her because I think she was only in the first Police Academy movie, right? Yeah. yeah she was I always one. remember from Mannequin. I was, I don't know. Yeah, that's right. I thought she was really good in this. I, I always thought that she was a pretty talented actress. And, and she's Canadian. You know, which is a plus. And I don't know how she ever got through shooting this movie because she was also doing theater at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was she was going back and forth between the two. And like a lot of actors, like theater is where it's at. You know, it, it, that's what yeah. that's where you go to feed your soul as an actor. And but you make no money. You you want to you want to work in the theater. You're like, you know, waiting tables or, you know, find another ways to make money. Mm-hmm. Whereas you make films to make money to support you doing theater. And that's what she was doing back in the day. Um, let's talk about a couple of scenes from the movie that I thought were good. There's that battle in the alley. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that scene was amazing. Like there's this massive gunfight and then it just stops and there's this Chinese standoff and then they have this huge hand to hand combat scene. I thought that was actually for a B movie. I thought it was really, really, really well done. Was that the one where the three guys with superpowers show up at the end? Yes. So it's near the beginning of the film and there's the two yes. groups fighting. It's like at a, a funeral yeah. that's going on. And then, yeah, yes. the yes. three guys in the wicker hats come down. I thought it was really good. I, I, I almost, cool. when I'm watching it, I almost thought it was going to break into song and dance. I'm like, is this a West Side Story parody? Like, you know, for some reason, that's I, just the way that the tone of the movie was such yeah. that I was like, this probably isn't going to go the way I expect it to. And it didn't, but it went in a different direction than my expectations had. So, But it still it feels like a B movie. Like you've got oh, the, sure. the title for crying out loud. Oh, the titles. The title's one of the best parts about this movie. The subject matter, you got the stereotypes, those three guys like you mentioned that, that descend from the sky with the, the the wicker basket hats and the camera does these over-exaggerated close-ups of them when they come down. Like it's all B-movie-ish, right? And the way they explain things too, you notice that he's like, David Lopan, the chairman of the Chinese National Bank, the Wing yeah. Kong Exchange, the most dangerous cutthroat den of madman in Chinatown. Like they just talk like they're in a B yeah. movie. So yeah. it doesn't mean it's not entertaining because it totally is. I think this movie is a bit of a blast to watch. So I don't know. I liked it. Yeah. It, uh, I'm glad we watched it, but uh, I didn't love it as much as I was expecting to. And I don't know if that's because my expectations had been built to a certain point where 
that it was going to be impossible to meet them or if there were just enough things in the movie that I sort of went, eh, that's not really for me. I mean, I, I, I can definitely understand why a lot of people hold this movie in such high regard. Um, but yeah, I was, I, I don't want to say I was disappointed in the movie, but it definitely didn't hit all the high notes that I was really expecting it to, but there were definitely parts that I liked a lot. Um, and I definitely think it has some of that rewatchability that we talk about with those, with the eighties movies yeah. is how rewatchable they are as opposed to some of the newer ones that maybe are not as much. And I think some of the, the over the top, the camp value, like, I think that's really what, what has helped this movie endure is it has parts that are silly. It has parts that are over the top, but it has some of these great fight sequences and it has some of these great co- comedic moments. And uh, so, yeah, it, it works on a lot of levels. I like the line when uh, David Lopin sees Gracie Law, that's Kim Cattrall. Mm-hmm. And when she walks into the, his palace and like he's watching her on like, closed circuit TV or whatever. And he's like, oh, now this really me off to no end. It just seemed like a funny line for him to say. I don't know. I have a question for you on this too. Chinese girls don't have green eyes. Is this true? Is this a thing? I don't know. How the hell would I know? I know. Like it seemed like a weird thing. They bring it up in this movie and I'm like, nobody questions it. And I guess, I guess it's true. Like, I don't know. Who knows? It's like anything else. If you say it with confidence, people will believe you, whether it's true or not. So I thought it was interesting too. They have all these, uh, the, the different hells. There was like the the hell where people where people are skinned alive, the hell of the up to, upside down skinners or sinners, the hell of being cut to pieces, the hell of the holy like the Chinese have a lot of hells apparently, um, and then no I love it they go up to this door at one point and it's got this Chinese writing on it and Jack Burton says, oh man what is that what does that writing say and Wang says it's the hell of boiling oil. Oh, just kidding. It says keep out. <laughs> like, he yeah. jokes about it. And there's a lot of talk about um, myths and legends, too, in this movie. Like, they talk about, like, the ancient city of the dead and monkey sacrifices and Chinese black magic. And funny thing, they were making this movie, and at the same time, they were making the movie Golden Child with Eddie Murphy. And the problem is, is that the Golden Child had a lot to do with, like, a lot of these sort of black magic things and stuff. And so they raced to get this movie out and into theaters before the Eddie Murphy movie because they felt that it would just get lost. Mm-hmm. You know, as it is, I mean, The Golden Child is, it, it bombed. I mean, yeah, people don't think good. of it, but it made way more money than this movie ever did. But long term, I think this movie has endured a lot more than that one. So, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I I agree. I agree with what you're saying there. I mean, The Golden Child, I remember seeing it simply because Eddie Murphy could do no wrong at yeah, that point. At and that you're point. like, well, it's got Eddie Murphy. It's got to be good. And you're like, mm, just because he's in it doesn't mean it's got to be good. In fact, it was not that good. And I watched it again, like within the last five years. And uh, it was it was much worse than I remember it being. So I, we, I think long term, I think this one wins out with the fans. But to your point, Golden Child made more money simply because it had better marketing at the time. Yeah, And Eddie Murphy was hit. Um, so one thing that stood out to me, you and I always talk about movies and how they hold up over time and things that don't hold up. There, there was a scene where Wang and, th- and there was another Asian character. I don't remember who it was. They're going through the tunnels and then they come across these female guards and they basically beat the out of the female guards. I don't know. It just it made me kind of squirm in my chair a little bit. I don't know. I just I don't know if it was an 80s thing or I don't, I don't know. Maybe it was just me. Yeah, I, honestly, I don't remember. Um, but no, it's that doesn't sound like it would. Fl- it certainly wouldn't fly today. And at the time, 
who knows? Oh, you know, one scene I really liked too was when uh, Jack Burton is trying to get everyone out and he leads them up to this big door and he's like, okay, on the count of three, I'm going to open this door and we're getting out of here. Just follow the leader. And he opens the door and all the bad guys are standing there and they play the music kind of in that B-movie-ish way. Mm-hmm. And the guy from Lethal Weapon is like right at the front. I just, I thought that was really funny. <laughs> and then, uh, of course, uh, Dennis Dunn, he stays to help him. And he's like, no, we're going to fight together. And then he takes out all of the henchmen. Burton doesn't yeah. help at all. Again, that whole stereotype of like the American doesn't help, you know? Well, and I think that was for me when the movie really started to get to seem like super over the top where at least in the previous fight, the only characters that were really doing things outrageous were the the three sort of superhero characters, the the lightning, thunder, and rain characters that came down right. and had the special costumes and the special helmets and everything else. But at this point, then you have uh, the character of Wang starts doing all the martial arts stuff with the like the, the the super jumps and the flips. And it's like, I mean, now we understand it's like, oh, it's all done like with wire work and things like that. And I know that's that's a callback to like this this style of Chinese action movies. But I, I guess I wasn't really expecting it to sort of go in that direction that much. But it really embraced it. It just went, not only are we going here, we're super going here. And then when you have the whole fight scene at the end, it's the exact same thing where it's just the over the top, everything jumping around. And uh, yeah, and, and to your point, I, I do like that it was the, uh, you know, the white guy who's usually like, I'm here to save everybody. I represent <laughs> America. He's like, just sort of, you know, take a step back, let everybody else do their thing. Let's go forward from here. Marlo, she's the one that was from Grey's Anatomy. Like you mentioned, she's got a, an interesting line because she says, this is like some radical Alice in Wonderland, which pretty much sums up the movie. Yeah, that's a really good way to describe it. Yeah, it really kind of hit home for me when she said that. And then um, there was a couple of things in it that were a little bit kind of scary or like like over the top too. The Remember that creature that captures Gracie? It's like this rabid gorilla or whatever. That was, and there's a giant spider Mm-hmm. And that floating head with all the eyes. Like I said, it was maybe not really for kids to watch, I guess. That's for sure. But again, kind of B-movie-ish kind of overall. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but I think by having those things in the movie, it almost gives them license to then do other things that are even more extreme and over the top. Because it really sets that level of expectation for the audience that like, well, hey, look, we've got the we've got these monster capital M monsters in this movie. Well, then in the next scene, when they use magic and shoot lasers and and there's ghosts and, you know, insubstantial characters floating through objects, you're more likely to believe that, OK, this is all part of the same world, the same mythology, the same whatever it's it's going to be, whatever it is that they've they've established. Much like with comic book movies of today, mm-hmm. it's you sort of set the bar and go, well, there are characters in this movie that can do these things. Then don't be surprised when they actually do more of these things later on. So you got to set that level. Remember when they drank the potion? It's yes. like it's like taking a shot of whiskey for courage. Like he's like, yeah, I feel pretty good. I'm not scared at all. Is it getting hot in here? Or is it just me? There were some pretty funny lines in the movie. I thought overall, I, I, I when I watched that scene, I thought to myself, am I the only one getting like a real male sexual vibe out of yes. this? Like you've got yeah. these six or eight guys in the elevator, and he's all like, I feel good. Like is it getting hot in here? And they're all looking at each other, and it's like. Wow, if I didn't know, you know, sort of where this movie was going, it's like, is this going to really take a left turn and they're going to open the elevator doors at the bottom and suddenly all the guys are going to have their shirts off and they're going to be making out? It's like, I know in the 80s you weren't going to have that, but you kind of felt that might be where it goes next. So I I definitely thought it was uh, 
was played played for laughs, which I thought worked. And you mentioned that sort of final battle scene, which I thought was <clears throat> one thing I thought was funny was you got Jack Burton, this brash and clumsy American, shoots his gun in the air. Oh, and I the, love that. the plaster falls from the ceiling and knocks him out. So again, the oh, Asians are left to fight the battle alone. You know, yeah, it was so funny. But in and, a way, sorry, in a way, I think I like that better because mm-hmm. it it doesn't just perpetuate the stereotype of well, the white man's here to save you again. Step aside, I got this. It's the opposite of that. It's oh, you the think opposite. the white guy's here to save you? Uh, uh-uh. uh, he's going to screw it up, and you got to help. You know, you need to take action yourself to solve the problems. And it's you don't that need loud, brash, yes, American. At least yes. the image that that people around the world have of Americans of being that loud, brash kind of person that doesn't actually do anything. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I really think that's that's where the, that sort of comes from. And then it's funny because he finally does something of consequence when he grabs that knife. Remember, and he yes. throws it back, and then you know it, it reminded me of, of the beginning of the movie when he catches that beer bottle. Yeah, it kind of came back, and then he, he kills Lopan with it. So even though he, this guy bumbles his way through the whole movie, of course he gets to make the final kill. You know, at the end, that well, stereotypical American winning. In but the I think end. I think that's I think that's eighties movie making. I don't think the movie gets greenlit if you don't have something like that at the end, where Kurt Russell, the A movie star, well, the the lead movie star mm-hmm. in this movie, he needs to have a win at the end. He needs to be the guy that ultimately takes down the big bad, even though. He could have, in theory, done a lot of other things along the way. You know, he clearly didn't. But at the very end, when it came down to the good guy versus the bad guy, he had to be the good guy doing that. So mm-hmm. I'm okay with that, the way that that played out. Because really, it, it out they're like co-heroes. Him and Dennis Don Wang's character. Yes. They're like co-heroes. Yes. You know, in this. And, and, and one thing I did like was the final scene. Like, it, it should wrap up, you know. And instead of it kind of finishing up nice and neat, he just leaves. And Marlo's like, she calls him out. She's like, aren't you even going to kiss her goodbye? And his answer, no. And he just walks out. And he just leaves. Wow, yeah. that's interesting. And then they kind of set up the possibility for a sequel with that gorilla on the back of the truck. But of course, like they never did, which I mean, they shouldn't either. Uh, there's been mm-hmm. talk of doing a remake of this. Have you heard about that? No. Yeah, I heard I saw somewhere on Twitter or something they were talking about. They should never do that. I think this is a very unique movie. I think it's very good. And I think it should just be left alone. But. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like anything else. If there's potential money to be made, they'll they'll mm-hmm. look at um, creating a reimagining, a spinoff, a sequel, a, a next generation of something, you know, something like that. The fact that it. um featured so many asian performers so predominantly in the film there's there are a lot of potential good reasons to bring this back in some fashion because it can open up opportunities for for asian actors to be the stars um but uh but yeah to your point i think it was a kind of movie at a certain time that played a certain way with a certain audience and i don't know if all of those key pieces would come together the same way now if they were to do a sequel or a reimagining or a whatever. So for the people that really, really like this movie, I think that um, doing something new with it would just taint the uh, the old movie. Like people who like it, like it, just leave it alone and away you go. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give it a rating out of 10? 
I'd probably give it a six and a half. I didn't love it, mm-hmm. but uh, I can understand why a lot of people do. And I can certainly uh, get, you know, there were definitely parts that I did enjoy. So, yeah, I think I think I'm about a six and a half. As a film, I think I agree with you. Six and a half seems about right. Um, yeah. I did mention it as my uh, personal pick last week because I, I think it's kind of endured. And it, it, I have a bit of a soft spot for it. For, for all the reasons that I mentioned, uh, you know, earlier. I don't know. I think it's it, it, it's pretty good. It's pretty good overall. But anyway. Yeah, I don't, have... I don't know if I would necessarily want to rewatch it again yeah. anytime soon. But I can definitely see why many people mm-hmm. keep it as one of their top 10 all-time movies. Or why some people would want to rewatch this over and over again. I, I'm not in that camp. But I can certainly understand why others might be. Yeah, I get it. All right. Here we go. Fun with Caveman. <laughs> Derek, we talked a little bit earlier about roles for Asian actors in Hollywood. And typically, they've never had the best opportunities to play good parts. In, in, in fact, you could argue that Hollywood's just been awful when it comes to Asian characters over the years. So, as a means of trying to maybe educate people just how bad it's been, uh, I thought we could maybe shine some light on the number of times that Hollywood has cast non-Asian actors to play Asian parts. Oh boy. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you the year, the character's name in the film and the non-Asian actor's name that plays the part. Try and guess the movie. Oh boy. Okay. It sounds complicated, but it's actually pretty easy. This sounds like it's going to be a super racist game. Nah, but it it was really, it's staggering. The the, the amount of times that Hollywood has cast non-Asian actors to play Asian roles. It's just, it's terrible. So, I'm going to give you the year, the character name, and the, the actor's name. name. The actor. Just name okay. the film. Okay. Yep. So, easy ones. 1965, the Asian character is Yuni Yoshi, and the non-Asian actor to play the part was Mickey Rooney. Name the film. Oh, was that uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's? Yeah, that has to be one of the most insensitive portrayals oh, ever worst. put on film. The worst ever. Okay, here's the year, 1985. The Asian character is Chun, and the non-Asian actor to play the part is Joel Gray. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was, um, we just talked about this. That yep. was uh, Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. All right, 1980. The Asian character is Ming the Merciless, played by non-Asian Max von Sydow. Can you name the movie? Oh, yeah, that was um, uh, Flash Gordon. Yes, it was. Okay, this one's a TV show. Okay, it ran okay. from 1972 to 1975. The Asian character was Kwai Chang Kane, and the non-Asian actor to play the part was David Carradine. Can you name the TV oh, show? Oh, was that, um, yeah, David Carradine. He was um, Kung Fu. Yes. All right, 1956, going back a ways for you. The Asian character was King Mongkut of Siam. The non-Asian actor to play the part was Yule Brenner. Can you name the film? Yeah, that was uh, The King and I. All right, here's a newer one. This one's in your wheelhouse. 2015. Still doing it. Hollywood's still doing it in 2015. Okay. The Asian character is Allison Ng. The non-Asian actor to play the part, Emma Stone. Could you name the movie? Wow, Emma Stone. Mm Mm-hmm. Playing Allison Ng in 2015's film. Wow. No, I have no idea. It was called Aloha. Oh, yeah. 
I think Bradley Cooper was in that. Mm. It was right, really ni- bad. 1986. The Asian character's name was Ben Jabatuya. The non-Asian actor that they that Hollywood cast was Fisher Stevens. Can you name the film? What was the year again? 1986. No, I have no idea. Short Circuit. Short Circuit. Oh, yeah. Jeez. All right. 1980. The Asian character was Fu Manchu. The non-Asian actor to play the part was Peter Sellers. Can you name the film? Oh. Yeah. Um, oh, I know this. This was... This is probably one of the ones where he played multiple roles. Uh, was it The Party? No, it was the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu. Oh, yeah, no, no idea. All right, 1962, the Asian character was Chun Jin, and the non-Asian actor to play the part was Henry Silva. Can you name the film? 1962. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Um, Henry Silva. Yeah, I don't know who that is. He was uh, from Sharky's Machine. You mentioned that you saw that. He was the assassin in the Sharky's yeah, Machine. That doesn't help me. No, I, I have no idea. The Manchurian Candidate. And the last oh. one, I'm going way back, only because you and I are like massive film buffs. Okay. So I'm, go, I'm going back all the way to silent film. In oh 1919, okay. the Asian character was Chen Huan, and the non-Asian actor to play the part was Richard Barthelmus. Do you know? As a massive film buff. I studied this film in film school in university. So um hmm. Oh, I gotta guess something. Uh what about I don't know. Great train robbery. No, it was broken blossoms. No, never heard uh, of it. Like I say, I studied that film in, in film school. It was something else. Um so, yeah. So, there you go. You can see lots of times where Hollywood, even as recently as 2015, are casting non-Asian actors to play Asian roles. And it's just, you know. And then we have a movie like this that allows the Asian uh, actors to kind of come to the forefront. And um, and for that reason, it's one of the best parts about this movie, I think, this week. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. Well, we, um, we held our pop culture fantasy draft, as I mentioned. The judges... Uh, you picked Big Trouble in Little China, so now it's over to me to pick a movie from 1986 for its review on our next show. <clears throat> you know, I had a whole list of movies that I wanted to do. I couldn't find any of them on the streaming services. I was thinking about movies like Howard the Duck, Good. One Crazy Summer, Platoon, Little Shop of Horrors. I was thinking about maybe About Last Night, even Crocodile Dundee. None of them are available on the streaming services. So, I want to keep it easy. You know, Wait, I mean, you don't own all of those on home video? Well, that, that's, it's, I'm thinking about you, and I'm thinking about our yeah. listeners having a difficult time to find them. So, I decided to go with the movie that I'm pretty sure that we both will agree is a fantastic film. So, we're not going to be doing a lot of arguing next week, that's for sure. Uh, but it's a classic, that's for sure. It's Rob Reiner's Stand By Me. Based oh. on a short story by Stephen King from 19. 19- I literally just watched this yesterday. Perfect timing. It was on so, TV and oh, it's so rewatchable. I just, it was on. I'm like, I'm watching this. That's nice. a great pick. So we're going to watch Stand By Me. We're going to come back. We're going to review the film. It seems like appropriate. Like I say, I wanted to do like some of those other ones, but I, I'm surprised Platoon wasn't available. I know. Uh, I thought it would be too, but it was wow. not. Not at all. So we're going to watch Stand By Me and come back next week. And we're going to do that. And until then, this is Chris McBride on behalf of myself. 
and Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 